to the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. Very first book in your Bible. We'll be reading the first seven verses of chapter 12 here in Genesis. word of our Lord says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from all your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot with him. And Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. And so they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Let us pray. O Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you. Grant that we may know and understand what things we ought to do. And grant that we may also have grace and the power to faithfully accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We have been making a slow trek through the Old Testament in the last few weeks. And you should remember that I've been pressing home the point that this really is a story of grace and mercy. It is not a story of judgment. It is not a story of anger. It is not a story of vengeance. It is not a story of some angry and cantankerous God who is impossible to please. This is the story of grace and mercy. It is a story... Not just of grace and mercy, but a story of tragedy and redemption. We find a fall and we find a remedy. It is a story where we find in its characters tragedy and redemption. The greatest of the characters are not without their faults. Think of King David. The worst of its characters... We find glimmers of hope and potential, possibility 
even in the likes of King Saul. A story of grace, mercy, tragedy, and redemption is the story of love and faithfulness. Specifically, God's love and faithfulness. Throughout the pages of our Old Testaments, we read of God's unquenchable love and His never-failing faithfulness. It is God whose motto should be Semper Fidelis. Not the U.S. Marine Corps. He is always faithful. Always. Even when it hurts Him. Even when it costs Him. He is one who passionately and zealously loves His people and is faithful to them. Last week we looked at the fall. And we saw that in the fall, man exchanged his liberty for bondage. He exchanged love of God for fear. He exchanged his knowledge for stupidity. The fall itself was pretty stupid, as is our sin. He exchanged truth for falsehood. Partial truths, lies. He exchanged work for work. Sorry, there's no getting out of it. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat, is what the, even the New Testament tells us. But he exchanged a joyful and productive, successful work, work in which he found his potential realized for work that would be troublesome and full of toil and full of sweat. The land wouldn't produce what the land was supposed to produce. He exchanged creativity, the possibility of making new life for pain and death he had for life. This tragic, tragic beginning will be answered and met by God's love and faithfulness. God will not leave us alone He is always the God who pursues us. He is always the God who comes in the cool of the day and says, Adam, where are you? He speaks that question into our lives. Where are you? Every story has a plot. That's what makes a story a story. Something happens. There's somebody, something, and something happens. And the story is a plot of explaining what is the outcome. How do things get resolved? How does the problem get fixed? Does it get fixed? We hate stories that end tragically. We hate stories that end without hope. We love the stories that tell us they lived happily ever after. We all love those types of stories But that underlines the fact that every story has a plot. It is going somewhere. It is a tale of something. That's the essence of storytelling. Whether modern stories or ancient stories, stories have plots. Something happens. There are characters. There are things that happen to those characters. We have... We have plots that center around man versus man and the the struggle between people. We we have those plots that are the story of man versus nature. Man, you know, troubling and toiling over some thing in the world. Whether it's 
hating his job or whether it's not having a, a break in life's circumstances. We have plots in around man versus the supernatural or man versus himself even. All those plots tell us a story. And every story has a plot. The story of Scripture has a plot. In fact, the story of Scripture, the plot around which the story of Scripture is wound, concerns God's people living in God's place and enjoying God's presence. Hence, the title of my sermon, Three P's in the Plot. A little play on words there. You're welcome. You can thank me later. The plot around which the story of Scripture is wound concerns God's people, us, living in God's place. Think of it. We gathered into the church. We call it His house, a sanctuary, a holy place, enjoying God's presence. He promises that He will meet us as we gather in His name. He promises that when His people are assembled, He is there in their midst. That is the essence of the plot of Scripture. God's people, God's place, God's presence. More specifically, we're talking about Yahweh's people. Yahweh's place. Yahweh's presence. Yahweh is the name of God given in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew name. In your English translations, you'll read the word Lord. The Lord. And Lord will be in small caps. You ever wonder why that's there? Denoting the fact that that is a Hebrew name, Yahweh. It's a personal name. It's derived from a verb of being. You remember your your grammar lessons from growing up. You've got verbs of action to do something. And you've got verbs of being to be something. You toil. You are a farmer. This is a personal name that is built off of this verb of being and it means simply, I am who I am. You remember Moses at the burning bush. God had told Moses, you're going to go back to Pharaoh and you're going to walk into Pharaoh's throne room and you're going to put your finger in his face and say, let my people go. God has sent me to rescue them. And Moses said, who am I to tell Pharaoh has sent me? What God is this? Of all the gods of Egypt, of all the gods in the surrounding lands, in whose authority, in whose name am I supposed to approach Pharaoh and tell him to let all of God's people go? And God said, Yahweh. I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. You tell him, I am, has sent you to him. We read here that the word of Yahweh came to Abram. And we read... that Abram responded and Abram obeyed and Abram did that which Yahweh 
required of him. And when he reached where Yahweh had sent him, he built an altar. He set up some stones. For God, Yahweh, had appeared to him. This story is about Yahweh and His people. It is about Yahweh's love and faithfulness for His people. And it is about Yahweh getting His people back into His place so that they might enjoy His presence. That's the story. Yahweh's people. We read throughout our Old Testament about these key figures. We read of Adam and we read of Noah. We read of Abraham, here called Abram. We read of Moses. We read of David. We read of all these great people. And you can think of all the others. Some of the more amazing and and kind of epic people like Samson with his great strength. King Solomon with all of his wisdom. We think of the prophets, the older prophets like Samuel and Elijah and Elisha. We read also of Isaiah, Jeremiah. God's story is about God interacting with His people. And the story begins with Adam, that tragic figure, living in the Garden of Eden, enjoying God's place, enjoying God's presence, We read that even when Adam falls with Eve, that even then God's presence walks into the garden like it's a normal thing. It's His garden. He's planted it. He has placed Adam there. And the story ends with Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden, being sent out of God's place and no longer enjoying God's presence in the cool of the day as they once had. We touched on Noah a little bit last week and we read in the story of Noah that all of the world, all of God's people have become so tragically sick and depraved that not just what they thought, but all of the imaginations of their heart were every bit of it was only fixed toward evil and that continually without end. But God rescues a people. He rescues Noah and his family. And God is beginning a campaign of redemption. He will wash away the evil and he will reestablish humanity. Not only that, we then read on and we get to this man Abram. I would call him a young man, but he's not so young. God came and spoke to him at the age of 75. God said, leave everything you know and follow me. God promised him a great name, great family, though at that point in his life, he and his wife Sarai had zero children. And he promised him a place. A place that would be His. A place that in which He would dwell with the presence of God. He said, get out of your country. Get from your family. Leave your father's house. It's time to move. 
God promised to make Abraham a blessing. God establishes in Abraham a family of promise. A family that will not just be blessed, not just enjoy God's blessing, but a family that will become a blessing, that will be God's blessing, not just to future generations, but to all peoples and all of the nations and all of the families of the earth shall be blessed in you, Yahweh said to Abram. In Moses, we read of God redeeming His people. He is establishing not just a family of promise, but He's establishing a people of redemption. Bringing them out of Egyptian captivity. Bringing them out. Restoring them. Redeeming them. Taking them back to that land of promise that He had given to Abraham and his family. And in David, the greatest of Israel's kings... Their second king. A man after God's own heart. A man of God's very own choosing. God is establishing not just a family, not just a group of people, but He's establishing a kingdom of priests. A kingdom to intercede for the world. We, we think so unfortunately of the Old Testament and Israel as being, well, the rest of the world is just kind of without hope. But at least there's Israel. But we forget that in Israel, God is establishing a kingdom of priests. And what do priests do? They intercede. They go between the people and God. In Israel, God is establishing a mediator between Himself and His world. Because God's aim is to bring Adam and all of His people back into His family. Back into fellowship with Himself. We read in the New Testament of Jesus being a second Adam. He is one who's come to correct the problem, to fix it, to bring redemption, to fulfill promise, to be Himself our high priest, to give us a new start. And what we find is that what began in this couple, Adam and Eve, and what was redeemed after generations only through this family, Noah and his family, what was reestablished in hope here in Abraham and his family, who seemed to be beyond hope, being so late in life with no children, God is offering not just to families, not just to individuals, not just to you know a, a, a motley crew of folks who've come out of bondage, not even just to a simple kingdom, but He is offering redemption and love and hope to all the world. Because this is the story of God rescuing His people. God will not leave us alone. He will pursue. The Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country. Go to a land that I will show you. God is redeeming His people. God is taking them to His place. The story of the Old Testament is the story of God's place, Yahweh's place. 
Yahweh's place began as this little garden called Eden, between the rivers, there in ancient Mesopotamia, where the waters flowed, where the animals were named, where all the vegetation was found in abundance. It was God's very own special place for His people. They were to enjoy life. They were to enjoy working. They were to enjoy living. They were to fill the earth and subdue it. In Abraham, God promises to reestablish His place for His people. Eden had been lost, but Eden will be redeemed. And God takes Abram to a place called Canaan. We call it the promised land. Palestine. A place of promise. A place where God's people are intended to enjoy His presence. When the kingdom is first established, we find that that the center of worship is a city called Shiloh. That city is moved, so to speak, to Jerusalem. That center of Israel's worshiping life. David moves the tabernacle from Shiloh to Jerusalem. God, through Israel, is putting up boundaries, building a structure, establishing His place in the world. And specifically, in Israel's midst, there in Jerusalem, first in Shiloh, all throughout Canaan, God's presence is known in a very, very specific place. And that place was the tabernacle. Moses had gone up Mount Sinai and met with God, and the people waited at the foot of the mountain. And Moses is given instructions for how to build a tent an enormous tent for His people. Our kids just uh, last night were given by their uh, Mimo and Papaw and Uncle Tom, Aunt Carrie, and Cousin Elizabeth a, a big nine-person sleeper tent. I mean, it's a big thing. It's, it swears. It swears it can be put up in 60 seconds. Um, I, we'll see. We'll, we will see. And it's a big tent. It's a good-sized tent. And... What God is saying in the building of the tabernacle, in the commissioning of the tabernacle to be prepared, is my people are living in tents, I will live in a tent among them. Israel's wandering, living in tents. And God says, build me a tent. I want to live with you. There's going to be a place among you where I'm going to dwell. There's going to be a place where I'll lay my head down. David, you remember, wants to build God a house. God, we've established the kingdom. We've built ourselves houses. We've got, we're no longer living in tents. We're no longer just moving around. We've got life here and vineyards and we're enjoying life. Can't we build you a house? That's where the, the tabernacle is, is transformed, no longer uh, being a, a moving tent into a permanent dwelling. God will live among His people. They will know His place. 
And ultimately, the Scriptures tell us, the whole world is God's place. He doesn't just live in houses built by hands. Think of, think of what the, 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 the theology that is communicated in the tabernacle and the temple. They were both laid out very similarly. You had a large courtyard. Within that courtyard, you had a holy place where only the priest could enter. Within that holy place, you had yet another holy place, which the Hebrew says is the holy, holy place. It's like the really, really holy place. We call it the holy of holies. In Hebrew, it just is the holy, holy. It's the really holy, holy. Right? In there, you have the Ark of the Covenant. We think of Ark as a boat because our minds go back to Noah and we think, wait a minute, yeah, the big boat. Why is it calling the Ark of the Covenant a boat? Well, Noah's Ark was not a boat. It was a box. It was a floating box. It was not nice, smooth, and rounded. You remember last week I said it wasn't some cute little story about animals getting on a boat, twosies and twosies. It was a disastrous, horrific story. A story of terror and death. A story of hopelessness where there was just a glimmer of hope in this one family. You've got the Ark of the Covenant. And the Scriptures tell us that on the Ark of the Covenant, which housed a number of things, a plate of manna, uh, Aaron's rod, uh, the Ten Commandments, those tablets that Moses had broken in anger and then had to re-craft. And um, in the ark, on the ark, you've got the cherubim. Two cherubim. Dangerous looking angels. Not cute, fat little cherubs like we see in Italian Renaissance art. Terrifying beasts. You can read of them in all sorts of terrifying passages in the Old Testament and New. And between those cherubim, you have what Martin Luther called the mercy seat. The place where God said, Yahweh said, that's going to be my place. I'm camping out right there. So, in all the world, you've got Israel. In Israel, you've got Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, you've got tabernacle, then a temple. In that tabernacle temple, you've got the courtyard, the holy place, the holy, holy place, the ark, the mercy seat. If that doesn't give you kind of a weird feeling, you just don't think like I think. I think, whoa, this is really interesting. In this tiny little place. Here is God residing. And He can't be bound to it. The Scriptures tell us that the earth is His footstool. That all the earth is His. He is Lord of both heaven and earth. We think of heaven as being some place that's so far removed, you know, once we die we'll have to fly a a few days to get there. Because of course we're going to sprout wings and be angels. We've got this really, really non-biblical worldview about how the cosmos, the universe is laid out. What the Scriptures tell us is that heaven is not some far off place. Heaven kind of overlaps earth. 
the tabernacle, the temple, the ark, the holy of holies, Israel, Jerusalem, all of these places remind us that heaven is just right there. We don't need megaphones or cellular phones to try to call up God to to reach Him because He's far off. Paul told the Athenians, those philosophers who had gathered in the Areopagus, he said, God is like right there. Right there at our faces, just longing for us to reach out and touch Him. That's what prayer is. That's what worship is. It's, it's, a, it's a time that we stop and we say, wait a minute. God is right here. God is near. And God is wanting to do something and He's able to do something. He's just right here. When we gather for worship, we're not gathering just to do something, to mimic whatever's happening in heaven, you know, light years and light years away. We're participating in what's going on around us. Because God has not abandoned the world without hope. God will redeem the world. He will renew the world. The heaven to come is not some place light years away where we'll live for all of eternity. The heaven to come, as David read in Revelation 21, is about God coming and reestablishing and cleansing and renewing the world that is. In fact, we will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. And that new heaven is like a city, the Bible says, that drops down out of the skies and dwells among the new earth. The story is about us as His people returning to His place. When you read about the new heaven and the new earth, it sounds an awful lot like Eden. We looked a few weeks ago. You've got the rivers teeming with life. You've got the tree of life. This kind of garden-esque picture that's painted for us. God is bringing us back to His place. He is reconquering the world to be His place. That ought to adjust how we think about the Great Commission. It's not just some marching orders for some select band of people who are going to go and try to you know, convince a few folks to make some decisions. God, through His Son Jesus, said, go and make disciples of all nations. Better yet, He says, As you're going, disciple all of the nations. He promised them that the Holy Spirit would come and He said, you will be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem, in Judea, surrounding area, Samaria, even far up there, throughout the uttermost parts of the earth. There are some scholars that that connect that 
uttermost parts of the earth, the furthest reaches of the earth, to the nation of Spain, or the, the, the land of Spain in that time, because Spain was often called the end of the earth. You know, it was where Europe just dropped off into the sea, and we know the sea just goes on everlastingly until you fall off, you know, the, the sea's cliff. I always wonder, is there a waterfall at the end of the sea's cliff? How, how did that work out? But you can imagine Jesus, the thought occurred to me a few weeks ago, and it's a really awkward thought, and I'm going to confess it to you now, it's kind of embarrassing. I thought of Jesus talking to his disciples, and he kind of had this Howard Dean moment. You're going to be my disciples in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and even to Spain. Woo-wee! Jesus is talking about reclaiming God's world as His place. Living as citizens of His kingdom. Here and now. Because heaven is not something to look forward to way out yonder. Heaven is something that wants to redeem the earth. Heaven is something in which we can live now as His people. Because we are His people. This is His place. And we are called to enjoy His presence. The story of Scripture, the story here specifically in the Old Testament, is the story of Yahweh's presence. It's hard to find it here in the story of Abram being called to leave his country and leave his family and go to a place that God's going to show him. But it's interesting that verse 7 ends with Abram building an altar. Setting up stones to remember what God has done. God had appeared to him. This is a place where Abram knew God's presence. Where he heard Yahweh's voice. Where the I Am said, This is yours. This is ours. Yahweh's presence. Getting back to our grammar lesson. It's not about just people. It's not just about places. It's it's really about prepositions. God lived among His people. Adam and Eve, they weren't shocked that God showed up. I don't know if it was brunch or if it was like evening snack or it might have been elevensies, but God comes walking in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve, oh, good grief, we got to hide. God dwelling among His people. He was near them. We, we, don't, we don't have a lot of information of what passes between uh, Abram and Noah, except for, of course, a lot of begatting. And we know that kind of goes on. But when we read that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, it's like God is just right there near His people. And He says, okay, we're going to wipe this thing clean. We're going to flood everything, baptize the earth, wash it clean. We're going to reestablish a new humanity through Noah. God is near His people. We read in the Old Testament of God being on His people, specifically His anointed ones. 
the prophets, the kings. To be king meant the prophet came and poured oil, anointed. And that oil was to represent the presence of God's Spirit on a person. We, we read these you know, odd prepositions throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, God is on people. He's like hovering on them. There are a few that says that the Spirit of God was dwelling in them, but those are very, very few and far between. The story of Pentecost in the New Testament is that God no longer wants to just be near us. He doesn't want to just be on us, resting on us. He wants to be in us. He wants to dwell in the human heart. He wants to take up residence in our lives, in our very selves. Not just be in our pockets as as some lucky charm to help. But He wants to live in us and make us His people. And in the story of the church, you have things kind of coming full circle a bit as God is said to be among His people as they gather. For He is in them, dwelling in their hearts by faith through His Spirit. And so when the church gathers, when the church, the assembly assembles, when the called out ones are called together, God is there among us. The Scriptures tell us of heaven, a new Jerusalem coming to be on the new earth. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He says, I will be with them. It's interesting how God's voice comes to His people. Adam, having fallen into sin, hears God's voice. Where are you? Then even further, what have you done? Noah, build a box. A really, really large box. Abram, get up, pack your bags, and leave. Through Moses to Israel, again, get up, pack your bags, and leave. You're going back to my place. You are my people, and I have heard your cries, and I'm rescuing you from Egypt. This is a story of rescue. Of getting Yahweh's people back into Yahweh's place. So that together, as His people, dwelling in His place, they might enjoy His presence. I've been trying to encourage you to Hear your story in the story of Scripture. To see yourself in its characters.
Not because these things didn't really happen, but because they did happen. This is how God's people lived. This is how God's people fell. This is how God's people failed Him. This is how God's people were unfaithful. And this is how God's people knew His redemption and His faithfulness and His love. I want to ask you, do you see yourself in the story? In the story of His people? In the story of His place? In the story of His presence? Do you see where your story is woven into the tapestry of that story? What is your answer to God's question to Adam? Where are you? He's called us to be His people. He wants us to recognize that He is near us. He is not far removed. He wants us to know that He is going to redeem this earth. That this earth is not something to be scoffed at and mocked. This is His place. And He will redeem it. And He wants us as His people who gather in His place, who live in His place, for the whole earth is His, to enjoy and to share His presence. He is rescuing us. He is redeeming us. Have we and will we say, that's my Redeemer. I will be His child. I will dwell in His kingdom gladly. Let's pray.